0: Today we're gonna talk about how you can make better wildlife photos on Behind the Shot. Hi, once again, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel, got a great show lined up for you today. Real quick before we dive in, I do want to remind you, coming up in April of 2021, I have a new workshop. It's an online remote learning live workshop through Princeton Photo Workshops. You can find that at princetonphotoworkshop.com, singular on the URL, princetonphotoworkshop.com. Again, it's in April. It's three weeks in a row, one night per week, and we're gonna have a lot of fun. Again, it's live, it's interactive, and I hope that you will check that out and join me for that. And uh, as always, with this show, you can find the show notes up at the website. It's BehindTheShot.tv. You can find a small gallery of my guest's work, a little bit that I wrote about my guest, and uh, see the shot that we're talking about today on the chance that you're listening to the audio feed instead of the video feed. Which brings me to my guest today. My guest today is a Canon Explorer of Light. It's Charles Glatzer. Charles, how are you? Great, Steve. Thanks. Appreciate the invite. It is so nice to have you here. Uh, I, I have been a fan of your work. And the shot that we picked today is one of those amazing once-in-a-lifetime photos. We'll touch on that in a second. Let's talk about you for just a second. So first of all, you are North Carolina-based, is that correct?
1: Yes, sir. I live in Hendersonville, Western North Carolina.
0: So I have to ask then, is the picture behind you yours?
1: (laughs) Uh, It is in Western North Carolina. actually shot it in the Smokies, yeah.
0: Oh, okay, nice. I like that. So you are a wildlife nature landscape photographer. Uh, you're a speaker, you're an educator. And I mentioned that you're a Canon Explorer of Light, which I've had a ton of Canon Explorers of Light on this program. It's a it, it's a program I'm a big fan of, but I want to talk about your affiliations aside also from the Explorer of Light thing. Because there's one in there I didn't I, I had not heard of before. And that is uh first of all, you're X-Right Colorado, okay, F-Stop Global Icon, but you're also uh, listed as M Photog. Right.
1: So, What is M-Photog? It's a designation from uh, PPA, Professional Photographers of America.
0: Oh, Master Photographer.
1: Master Photographer, yeah. So it's just an abbreviation for Master Photographer.
0: Okay. That makes sense to me now. I get that. One of the other things that was interesting to me is, again, people you've worked for kind of set all of this up. You've had work appear in Outdoor Photographer, National Parks, popular photography, National Geographic, and you are an educator with something called Shoot the Light, which is actually your website, shootthelight.com. And as I was researching this, trying to understand Shoot the Light, and and I want you to explain this to me a little bit, founded in the mid nineties by you, it's a, it's a photo workshop and series, or give me the, give me the helicopter pitch on Shoot the Light.
1: Yeah. So there's a couple of different things. Um Originally in the 90s, I started doing underwater photography all around the world. And while we were on the boat, everybody started asking, hey, how do we do this? How do we do that? So the little light bulb went off and I said, you know, it might be more advantageous for me to teach than it is to try and sell these underwater photographs. So eventually I started leasing the boats. So the boats mine for the week. So I would fill it with wannabe underwater photographers. And that's how the teaching started. So shoot the light. Which is my company, is an instructional photographic based tour company. So we don't just lead photo tours, they're all about instruction. So we keep the participation basically limited. Um, and then there's what we, it's called a, a technical workshop series. So I think that's what you're alluding to. Oh, okay. the series, the series is like a four-day event. So it's one full day of metering, one full day of flash, another post production, one on visual skills. So we kind of cover all those bases. Extremely well, and then the places that we do them, we can take the classroom and practice what we preach. So we make sure that everybody, you know, has a full understanding both in the classroom and technically in the field.
0: I kind of dig the the format that you just laid out. You know, one day of flash, one day of of you know x y z, and then the fact that really the the part that are not part of the series, the workshops, for lack of a better phrase. Or, or I strike that the tours, for lack of a better phrase, are actually workshops in their own right. So I, I kind of like what you're doing there uh, as a speaker, which makes sense with your your uh, your experience and level of knowledge. Uh, you've done Audubon Sierra Club, PPA, Professional Photographers of America, ASMP, the Association of Media Professionals. Um, and you do something that is near and dear to my heart you judge photo competitions. Yeah. So yeah. name some of the photo competitions you've been a judge for.
1: Uh, we've, <laughs> that's, a, that's a double-edged sword because it gets you in trouble <laughs> sometimes. So it's like a lot of times I want to remain anonymous when we're doing those contests and there have been a bunch of the higher-end ones because all of a sudden you start getting crazy emails from people. Right. How come you didn't vote right. for my picture? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and the higher-end contest is not just one judge anyway. You know, there's kind of like a board... Um, the good ones have five, six, you know, right. stuff like that. So you kind of uh, average things out a little bit. But yeah, in the '90s, we did beneath the sea, and there was David Dubalay from Geographic and a bunch of other high-end guys, you know, there and stuff. And uh, it's just I've done a bunch of them, but but I don't I hate putting the names out there because then I don't want that mail to start. But but I've been doing this a long time.
0: It's well, <laughs> and I I judge mostly more local affiliate of PPC type. Uh, uh, competitions. And I try explaining to people because a lot of people come to me and say, I don't want people judging my images. I don't want people, I don't want to get ripped up. And I try explaining to them, at least in my opinion, having your images critiqued and in some cases actually judged, not just critiqued, which are two different things is in my opinion, one of the best ways to improve your photography quickly it I, is amazing. I and I, what I tell people is you can sit in a room. Like when I do, you know, the local chapters and I've submitted my images, you can sit in a room as people are ripping your work to death saying you're idiots and you don't understand what I shoot. You're welcome to do that. But I, I, I challenge you to not walk away with some nugget of information that makes you go, Wow. I never thought somebody could have seen, you know, that in my work.
1: I I agree with you a hundred percent. And I think there's a big difference between a critique and a criticism, right? And you as a judge or a person, you know, who's going to try and instill um, information to somebody rather than just, you know, kind of tell them, hey, you know, you should take up golf. Um, There's a big difference in that. And I have had people come to me and say, can you criticize my photograph? And I said, probably, but I'm pretty sure you're looking for a critique, you know, and, and there is a huge difference. Yes. And I've had exactly what you're saying. You know, I've, I've picked, you know, best in show and then first, second, third. You know, we did the Park Avenue Camera Club in New York. That's one of the oldest camera clubs in, uh, you know, in, I think in the country. So anyway, they asked me to do that at the end. And I was a little hesitant, but I said, okay, you know, you're sitting there in front of everybody trying to give them the rationale. And at the end of it, all those people who I judged for the photographs and the winners all came up and said, you know, you were right. You were right. And part of it is the first picture, there was nothing I could do to make the picture better. It wasn't the, the most iconic picture I've ever seen, but there's not one thing I could have done or would have done to enhance the photograph. All the other ones, okay, you know, there's somebody in the glass window. There's something over here. There's something there. And that just comes out to powers of observation, right? But the other yeah. one, nothing I could do, you know? Yeah. So and if you're honest- And
0: course. the other thing is people don't understand how, how real critique- Or real judging even works from from a root point of view. You know, so PPA has 12 uh, points of a merit image when you're talking about meriting images in a competition. And I I have yet to find a judge that works off of all 12. Most judges have one, maybe two, that speak to them. It might be impact, it might be technical aspect, you know, whatever it is. Um but Inevitably, by the fact that you have more than one person doing it, and hopefully more than one person that is qualified and that you you trust, uh, it's amazing what you can get out of that. Your your work when th- the stuff you shoot is so ridiculously real looking. I mean, it is so tastefully photographed, tastefully processed. I'm I'm curious. In general, let's talk wildlife. With wildlife photography in general, what is your, your kind of uh, uh, a general approach to processing an image, to keeping it authentic, right? But like when amount. I had Moose Peterson on, one of his big things was, I'm not trying to make my image punchy. I'm trying to accurately document a species, right? What's your general approach to processing wildlife?
1: As little as possible. So I'm a huge stickler, everybody who knows me. I'm as anal as I could possibly be to get it um, as precise as I can in the camera, right? Except for the ETTR thing, you know, so we're exposing to the right and all that stuff. Keep the noise down. But in post-processing, yeah, I don't do a lot. And I think it always amazes people when we do the post-production class or they're sitting next to me and they say, that's it. I go, well, what else would you do to the photograph? And they're like, nothing. And I said, well, there you go. You know, so, so that's it. And, and to kind of take it a step further, the more, you know, about photography, the more, you know, how to post-process, you do shoot the photograph different because I'm looking at the picture now in fruition. I'm not looking at the picture in the field as I'm taking it. I already know in post-production, what little tweaks I'm going to do to make the picture look, you know, as I see it in front of me or as I want to. Uh, So that's a big advantage.
0: Yeah. And post-processing granted for those that are out there that are going to argue with us on this. Yes, post-processing is subjective. Photography is an art. You want to go Photoshop the death out of your image? Go do it, right? If you want to composite and do digital art, go do it. There's room for everybody, but my argument usually is 99% of the time, 95% of the time, if you're photographing uh, a subject that is a living real being, it's the same as you wouldn't do a portrait and make that person, you know, look ridiculously vibrant because you know their skin doesn't look that way, right? It's it's the same type of a thing. Is there a common thread, regardless of animal, that runs through wildlife photography? I mean, I don't know if that even made any. I'm gonna sound like a total noob when it comes to wildlife photography now, but it, you know, do you shoot a bobcat different than you would shoot a bear, other than knowing their habits?
1: No. No, you don't. Um, I'm, I'm real conscientious about understanding animal behavior. All that translates into, um, me being what I call proactive. That's my whole mantra, you know? So it's not about where the animal is. It's about where I want it to be when I depress the shutter, right? So I could set myself up for the light, set myself up for the background. Then I have to wait for the animal to orient itself correctly to the light before I take it. So all those little subtle nuances, you know, and it's all about the attention to detail, right so the more critical you are with the attention to detail the less i have to do in post now that being said there are people's photographs that i look at who tend to photograph as you're saying more journalistically right altruistic they don't do anything right. if there's a branch in the way documentation I don't care. exactly exactly and and when people start to take it to the next level you know taking things out putting things in i think it kind of sends the wrong message to us as uh, journalists you know journalists or documentarians. Um, if you want to take it to the creative, you know, realm, just as you alluded to, yeah, sure. Go for it. You know, but but you need to to be honest and upfront with that. There are people whose photographs I look at who will blow your mind, but they're not real. You know, right. the sky's different, you know, the animals dropped in, the rain's, you know, creatively imparted. Um sure you could do that, you know, but at, at that point it's a photographic illustration.
0: Well, and see that's a great point though. And that is you have to know for yourself what, I don't want to say what is your goal. It's the wrong word. You have to know for yourself though what you're shooting, right? So for me, I'm a live music photographer. I can take an image and purely based on how I edit that image, include it in various types of usage models or exclude it from some, right? So I could shoot an image and that exact same image process it one way where I remove a mic stand, that breaks journalistic integrity rules. I'm not going to sell it to the New York Times uh, or probably even Getty at that point because they follow journalistic integrity rules. However, the the band or the venue may want to use it as a marketing poster. On the other hand, if I left that in, the band or the the venue may go, I don't want that mic stand there, but I could yeah. use it for journalism.
1: Yeah, right. you're 100% right. right. So if your goal is to sell fine art, right? And you want people to put it on their wall. Well, there's, then there's a little bit of, you know, you can play that little creative aspect to it, right? So you can crop in, take a little stick out. I right. mean, it's just define find the market, you know, which I think is exactly what you're saying. And yeah, again, you know, as long as you're true to the, you know, to the, to the genre, have at it, do whatever you want. Well,
0: you know, and I think care. about the tools you as a wildlife slash nature photographer have, right? You can choose depending on the animal or how far away you are to change your exposure to zoom in or zoom out to include or exclude certain things you're cropping in camera but you're doing it in in a more uh honest I don't even want to say honest way because I don't have a problem with cropping but I you know in in removing things and not including it you change the story right that's been the case with journalism forever uh you know that the journalist standing on the side of a Hill in the Civil War shooting dead bodies didn't take the people at the picnic table that were eating, you know, that type of thing. We, we all choose that. Let's jump into this shot here because this shot is... Today's shot is, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, it is one of those once-in-a-lifetime moments. And before I bring it up, let me just remind you, if you are listening to the audio version of this podcast in your podcast app, uh, you can go to the website behindtheshot.tv, and you can, at that website, find a gallery of Charles's work. The image that we're talking about today is in that gallery. You can also read something I wrote. And all the links related to Charles and his work and where you can find him, those are all in the blog post as well. And the video is embedded there too. If you want to watch the video of the show, of any of the shows, if your podcast app supports video... For example, the, the built-in iOS Apple Podcasts app supports video. I use an app called RSS Radio that I love, supports video. If it supports video, there is a separate feed when you search for behind-the-shot for behind-the-shot video, or the videos are up on YouTube. So make sure you go look at the image because this is one of those those just crazy shots. I don't know if there's a name for this image. I call it Bobcat dragging its prey through the snow, right? Am I before I describe this image to people? Am I right this is a really rare shot?
1: Yeah, it's the stuff we dream about getting. Absolutely. It's it's once in a lifetime.
0: Okay. So, for the people on the audio feed, here goes the normal nightmare. I'm going to describe this image. Yeah. My apologies to the maker before before I do this. But I'm going to start here. You made a comment a, a second ago, Charles, and that is, you know, sometimes you have to wait for The animal, to do something or give you attention, I think is the way you word it. Yep. This is a perfectly timed image. So let me set the scene. Snow, sun is coming from camera left. Very, very low, it looks like, based on the length of the shadows, but not so low that the shadows are soft. So the shadows have edge to them, right? And when I say snow, I don't want you to picture snow on the ground with like trees or mountains in the background. No, it's snow on the ground and the snow then goes up like a berm behind the bobcat. So it's nothing but snow in here. There's a wall of snow behind the bobcat, okay? And it is perfectly timed. The bobcat is walking from frame left to frame right, but turned its head to look right down the barrel of Charles's lens and in its mouth is a duck right? So it's, it's literally got its prey with it. The snow is fresh. This isn't packed. You can tell by the footprints that, there's, that this is powder, right? And the bank of snow I'm going to add that's behind him is absolutely key here. Not having trees, not having sky, only focusing on the cat, the prey, and the, the curves and soft shadows of the snow, I would argue That's what makes this shot 100%. Now, if you look at the sunlight and this is, I'm going to get into questions on this one in a little bit. If you look at the sunlight, the sun is behind the cat, camera left, and it's causing a long shadow in front of the cat, which is a leading line of exactly where that cat is walking, right? And here's one of the things that shadow could have been slightly angled, still long, but say it was going, you know, slightly lower in frame, that would have hurt the shot. The shadow is exactly the leading line following exactly the trace of the footsteps. Absolutely brilliant. And one of my questions, I'm just gonna say it now is, none of the shadows intersect with each other, right? So the shadow from the cat doesn't intersect the lighter shadow that's below it. I'm gonna die to know if that was intentional or not because it's completely clean. None of the edges intersect, it's awesome. Cat's at the lower left rule of third. Snow is white. Okay, so let me just say that last one again. The snow is white. People, snow is white. The snow here is white, right? I I can't stress it enough. And here's what's kind of cool. You feel like you're right behind this cat. You feel like that cat is looking not down the barrel of a lens of somebody shooting with a 600 millimeter lens from far, far away. You just feel like the cat is looking at you, going, yeah, it's my food. What are you gonna do about it? And there is so much opportunity here, based on sun position, to screw this shot exposure up, to clip the snow, to clip the the specular highlights or the snow on the back of the cat, or to not have detail in the shadows of the duck's face. Just, mm, nice. How'd I do?
1: I'm humbled. <laughs> I'm sitting here with a tear in my eye, man. <laughs> that was mind blowing. That was mind blowing. You, you just, you hundred percent, just brought the whole scene back to me as if I was sitting in the field looking at that photograph. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got chills. That was awesome.
0: Thank you. I'm, that 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 makes me so happy because you know what I mean. That's I It's exactly hard what you mean. to describe an image to people. You've so, got so to get me- to detail. Right.
1: Let me, let me. So, so the best thing, like you just said, snow, white snow, right? And here's the kicker, man. It's white snow with detail,
0: right? Yes. So you can every, see not just yeah, where the footprints. Every grain are. of snow. Yes. In where it's flat, where the cat hasn't walked yet, you can actually see, um, you know, the the holes and yeah, yeah just. So this was a Canon One D X Mark II, according to the EXIF data. Yes, sir. Six hundred f four is. Yeah. Here's where I'm confused. I'm guessing you had a teleconverter too because it shows a focal length of 840. Yeah, so there's a 1.4 on it, correct. Okay. You did a 600 millimeter lens and a 1.4 teleconverter and got this kind of detail.
1: Yeah. yeah Most people cameras can't do that. that. Um, so there's, there's a lot that goes on when you're shooting these long lenses, right? And it's not that you could take an 800-millimeter lens and shoot something that's a football field away. We have too much atmospheric conditions, and I don't think enough people take that into account. So on a sunny day in the dead of winter at minus 30 degrees, you're going to pick up heat shimmer, and that heat shimmer will go maybe 10, 15 feet up. So if I'm shooting on the ground, the picture looks like I shot it through a shower curtain, right? And and everybody wants you're to You're saying this was minus 30? No, no, it was cold, man. It was probably... Yeah, it had to be. I mean, I've been there in minus 40, but I bet it was really cold. I'm sure it was, you know, below zero for sure. Yeah, most Wh- of the stuff in Yellowstone where is this? in the winter. Yellowstone. Yeah, okay. up on the Madison River. So yeah, it was, it's cold.
0: Let, let's let clear for those people you're never going to go catch this bobcat with the duck in its mouth again. Let's set that out there first. But just for those people that want to know, EXIF uh, data, assuming it's correct. Was six hundredth of a second. Sixteen hundredth. sixteenth hundredth of a second. Right. Oh. Yeah. Did you need that fast? So I'm always
1: erring on the side of, if this happens, will I be able to grab it? If I set up at a six hundredth of a second, if the cat's going slow and then the cat bolts, I lose both, right? So I'm always erring on. I'm always, my thought process is always 10 steps ahead, right? It's if this happens, I want to be set up for right. it. So I'm as proactive as possible. And it's the same thing for that exposure that you were talking about. None of that is happening reactively. It's all proactive. So before the cat, I could set the whole scenario up for you in a minute. But anyway, so the cat's diving in the water. It's jumping off a bank. It's wrestling in the water. So immediately I'm like, okay, that's a good shot, but it's not the shot. So I pick the camera up. I manually set the exposure because I know the cat's going to go up the bank. Right, so when the cat walked up the bank, I know I had the exposure. I just had to concentrate on, you know, capturing that decisive moment, and that's how I do all of it. It's all proactive, you know, to the to the degree that I can.
0: I mean, well, proper, you know, to the prepared gets the prize, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. So,
0: ISO two thousand. Right. Guessing that right. was to support that sixteen hundred shutter speed that you needed.
1: Right, and then the other thing is I got that one four converter on there, right? So, I'm so that killed the-
0: your your aperture.
1: Right. So I'm at F4 with the initial lens. The 1.4 is going to give me 5.6. So if I can, I never want to shoot wide open. The pictures are always going to be sharper if I close down two-thirds of a stop to one stop anytime I use a converter off maximum aperture.
0: So what'd you do, go to 7.1?
1: That's why I went to 7.1, exactly.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, exactly. Okay.
1: Right. So you're shooting more through the central portion of the converter, right? So my edges are going to be sharper and the image is going to be sharper.
0: Okay, so so tell me this though, because this one actually surprised me. XF Data says you use now I understand you're shooting raw. I understand you can change this in post. Yeah. But XF Data says that you were shooting auto white balance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Usually I don't. Um, so the reason for that is the cat was going from the shade to the sun, right? So normally I'm really anal with that. And I'm gonna go to actually Kelvin. And I'm gonna put the thing in live view because it was a you know a 1DX, not a mirrorless camera. I put right. it in live view, I dial the temperature to exactly how I want, and then I will shoot under those conditions. But if the cat is moving from the shade to the sun, what's my white balance? It's right, so if I set right. for one, I'm gonna miss the other. And it's raw anyway, just like you said, so I can kind of tweak it a little bit. But if your white balance is off significantly, it's also gonna the way th- it's also gonna change the way that you um, alter your exposure. So I want to be as close as I can.
0: Okay. So normally at this point, I would actually start asking, you know, some detail questions, but you shared with me the story of this shot. And I think that pretty much answers all the detail questions. So, I mean, at least 90% of them, right? So once in a lifetime shot, explain this scene.
1: Yeah. So here's the background. So we've been really fortunate. There's been a, two to three bobcats each year um, in the past up around this area. And a lot of people knew about it. Um, The cats have learned to go over branches that overhang the river and dive in when the waterfowl goes underneath or a muskrat swims by. So it's kind of a unique behavior. And, you know, you sit there and you put your time in the field, and hopefully that shot will come to fruition. But the, the week that we got there, nobody saw the cat for a week. And I'm like, well, you know, your house cat's a creature of habit right? So there are specific areas that those cats will go to. Like on a real sunny day, there's a rock. And I said to my guide one time, you know, nobody's seen the cat, but let's go check under that rock. It's pretty sunny. You know, a cat's going to lay in your window, warm himself up. So lo and behold, we drive 20 miles, we get there, the cat's sitting under the rock, right? So, you know, again, being proactive, right? It's time in the field. I learned that from beforehand. So we're cruising down the river, it snowed, and then it stopped snowing. So it's about lunchtime. I think it was like 11 or 12 o'clock. And uh, I look across the river and I just see a mound in the snow. And that mound doesn't have snow on top of it. Now, again, it just snowed. So I'm like, well, that's kind of weird. I think that's the cat. But now it's probably 50, 60 yards easy on the other side of the river. So I said, give me your binoculars. So I take the binoculars and I look and I go, I can't be 100% sure. But I would bet, you know, heck of a lot of money that that's the the cat laying in the snow. So I said, if we're going to have lunch, let's do it here. So we're sitting there, we're eating lunch. We're we're BSing for about an hour. All of a sudden the thing stands up, shakes the snow off it. And I'm just like, you got to be kidding me. Pay dirt, pay dirt. So we tracked that guy for, it had to be, I bet three hours down the river as it stalked along the riverbank and it stretched on the trees and scratched on posts. And it was phenomenal just to watch that. Then it got to the spot where it typically hunts. And now when we get there, there's a lot of people in that spot, not just me, because it's a known area. So there's maybe 20 people who are kind of hanging out, you know, and they're like, Oh, we got the cat. I go, you got the cat. I found the cat like, like a mile and a half away. We just tracked that puppy all the way here. So we followed it and then bam, you know, I mean, it was just, here he goes, man. He dials in on the cat. It's crawling up the snowbank. He's stalking it. He's doing the whole crazy thing. And then he dives off the river, you know, off the snowbank. Boom. Wrestles this thing in frigid, you know, conditions. Now, the water's heated, okay? The water is geothermal, so it's, you know, it's still liquid. It's not frozen at that point. But when, when he starts to pull that that duck out, the air is so cold that it's getting ice on it instantly. You know, and just like you said in the picture, I mean, he's dragging it up the bank, there's fresh snow all over his face, you know, and then all of a sudden he just stops and he turns and looks back at the camera and I was like, please, if there is somebody up in those clouds above me, make sure this picture is sharp. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> we're just ripping yes. them off. Yeah. But that's not the time to say, hey, I think I'm going to change a converter, let me mess with my settings. You know, it's all fleeting moments and that's what makes it so exciting for you. You know, it's just fleeting moments. Okay.
0: Okay. So, oh, um, there's so many questions in my head right now. First of all, do you know why he looked back? Did somebody make a noise of the 20 people?
1: No, he's on the other side of the river. But I mean, there's a lot of people. Yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine. If people start going, you know, here kitty or making noises, I go off the deep end. I mean, as, as a wildlife photographer, we're stewards for the animals, right? Right, right, and we're right. There to We're there to just observe. I don't want to catcall literally, you know, in this, you know, in this conditions. But yeah, just stay there. You know, but if somebody does clank a tripod or something, but it just looked back, I guess, to see maybe if somebody was following it, you know, or whatever. And it only did that, you know, it seemed like an eternity, but I bet you it was 10 seconds, 15 seconds maximum, where it just stopped and looked back at the camera. And in that sequence, there's only two or three where he's got the glint in his eye and the catch light is perfect, you know, and those shadows, that doesn't happen by accident. You know, I didn't cut that shadow on purpose, right? I was going to throw the 2X on and said, no. Look how long the shadows are. That's an integral part, you know, of the photograph, just like you said, again, you know, with those leading lines and all that.
0: Um, so okay. it's not so, just
1: frame filling for the cat. It's about setting the cat up in its environment and telling a story with the image.
0: See, and that was one of my big thing. And you understand what I mean, right? The fact that A, the primary cat shadow is at the right angle, meaning the sun was exactly behind not the cat frame left, because the cat's actually moving at a little bit of an angle, but it was actually behind the cat's path, 90 degrees, right? Yeah. Um, That makes the shot that that path is leading where the cat's going to go. But the fact that it doesn't intersect the natural soft shadow that's there makes it, the the, the shadow is a subject in and of itself, like a secondary subject. It's like foreground, mid-ground, background subjects, right? Exactly. But here's the deal. The shadow, okay, so the shadow that's on the bank has a very sharp edge. The shadow that is all the way in the foreground, which isn't really a shadow per se, it's. It, I mean it is, but it's so soft that it's barely off color of snow, but that's soft edge. But the cat shadow, very harsh edge. You can see the shape of the cat's ear in the shadow perfectly cut out, which tells me this was not sunset or sunrise, right? This is some harsh light. So you wait all your life for a moment like this. Is that running through your head at that moment of, oh my God, this has to happen in harsh sunlight? No, Um, I'm,
1: you know, as a wildlife photographer, you, you encounter everything, you know, all these different circumstances. So we have rain, snow, clouds, sun, you know, all that stuff. And it's your job to make the most of it. So I knew if I had the exposure correct, right? And again, you know, we're just kind of ETTR, pushing the snow to the right without clipping, that the bobcat would be good. The the hardest part of it was making sure that those shadows, like you said, didn't cross his face, right? And that he was positioned correctly to the light. And then when he cocked his face to the sun, but there wasn't any shadow on his face, it was just like, you got to be kidding me. Here we go. You know, and then you're looking at the back of the camera afterwards and you're like, you know, again, you're like, just got your hands cupped like you're praying going, please Please be sharp, you know, yeah. and, and everything came together. And it's just, but, you know, the strange part is it's, it's really perceptive of you to notice the edges of the shadows, right? So we have a hard edge shadow, right, which means a direct source or point source. And then we have these beautiful, sensuous, soft curves in the snow, you know, with the soft edges, almost like diffused light that was being filtered through the trees. But it wasn't. So I don't know. It's kind of like a little anomaly, you know, if you looked at the, at the photograph you know, the way it just came out. But yeah, I, I couldn't have been happier the way that the soft, beautiful snow in the background, you know, with the hard edge just all well,
0: and, and you just, I, I didn't even, I don't think I said it, but it's a, it's an absolute key point. The only sharp edge shadow, really, is the cat shadow. Yeah. I mean, the one on the bank is a little bit sharper, but but here's the thing. One of the things, okay, I'm going to go back to where we started on this, right? With image competition judging. One of the things that a lot of times happens at the lower level of image competitions, the local level, is people submit these shots and a lot of times it's landscape and they've gone to Yellowstone or they've gone to wherever. And it's like, okay, well, you know, you're uh, keep trying, right? Great concept. Love the angle you chose. Love the composition. But let's be honest, we're capturing light and you clearly captured this at two o'clock on an August day. And it's all about the quality of the light. So, I mean, you you see that type of thing in work, if you know to look for it, you see that type of thing so often. And here, it's just so well executed. But here's the thing. I know that you don't do a lot, but like me, you're looking, I've had it where I chimp the back of a screen going, oh, yes, that's the shot. And I'll star it. And then I bring it up on, this, you know, on my computer and go, oh, you know what? It's actually a little bit soft. So you don't know till you get back. So here's the question. Right. Then you get back, you take these shots, you load them up on the computer. What's your workflow for post?
1: Um, so I used to be sponsored by Capture One. And I still think Capture One is probably the best software out there, you know, for extracting subtle detail and all that stuff. Um, But when Capture One stopped, kind of keeping up with the camera profiles and all the new stuff that came out, I kind of started to do Lightroom because that was the the one everybody wanted me to teach them. So the main flow right now is I import into Lightroom, do my generic, you know, tweaks and my global tweaks. And then if I need to go further, I'll import into, uh, you know, into Photoshop and go from there.
0: And what might you have done to an image like this one?
1: Um, just pull out a little bit more detail in the highlights. So I think that's a big deal. And I'll get emails literally every day, you know, and, and you'll see on my posts online, people are like, nobody does whites better than you do, you know? And I, I don't know, I'm just real critical with it. So I'm making sure I don't clip the highlights. And then there's a couple little mm, things that I do to kind of enhance just the detail in the whites. It's like, I get, so here's the big deal, right? I have a black bison or a really dark bison in the snow. Pretty contrasty. Okay, let's say it's an overcast day. So the contrast is a little bit flatter. But I still have white snow and I have a dark bison. So if I do the ETTR thing, unless and I quit-
0: you do the big mistake of saying, okay, they're in the shade and yeah. there's cloud and it's cloudy and I make it cloud white balance and now my snow yeah. is yellow.
1: Right. Right. So yeah, but white balance aside for just a moment. So I got the white balance correct. So I, I'm a big proponent of spot metering right? I don't like doing evaluative metering. There's too many anomalies, too many degrees of algorithms that they throw in there. And it's all the size of the subject relative to the background and the different tonality. So I try and stay away from evaluative. I'm a big guy for either spot metering. We're now with mirrorless, essentially what you see is what you get, right? Right. So the the meter pattern is basically irrelevant, but I'm watching those histograms to the nth degree, making sure that I'm not clipping the highlights, right? So I'll push it maybe, I don't know, close, you know, and if you do the spot meter thing, plus three stops is pretty much pure white. So if I go plus two and two thirds, we're 2.7, right above zero, which is going to make it mid-tone gray. My highlights are perfect. So here's what you got to, I tell everybody, just embed this in your coconut. Same light, same exposure, right? So we have a full frame bison walking in a blizzard with the river behind it in the snow. And we take a full frame image. Got it? And then the bison stops. And then it starts to to just kind of you know, throw its head back and forth and kind of look through the snow. Now my frame is filled with mostly real dark tones, right? Not even any white. Well, the exposure is exactly the same. It's the same bison and the same snow. But the people who rely on the meter or who go to automatic modes, now the camera says, oops it's dark. I'm going to make it two stops lighter. So they shoot a light gray bison, right? Then they back off again. The exposure is in the viewfinder is filled with, you know, two-thirds of the viewfinder is now snow. Now they get a picture that's two stops darker. It's the same damn subjects in the same light. Don't change anything. You know, and once people grasp that concept, all of a sudden it's like the light bulb goes off. Otherwise, it's the tail chasing the dog all the time. Right. So so you have that consistent light. I could shoot the same exposure essentially for hours. Now I could change the parameters, right? So I can go 1600 at 5'6", or I can go 800 at F8, or I can go, you know, F11 at 400. You know, of a second, it's all the same exposure, but we're changing the outcome of the photograph, right? So that's the key. And if you're in manual mode, it's simple. I go three clicks up, three clicks down, two up, two down, one up, one down. You know, so just equal. Cl-
0: did you do anything? You you mentioned bringing detail out, out of whites. Did you do anything to the snow here?
1: Yeah, there's a an older program from, it was back when Skylam was called McFun. Oh, sure. Right? I yeah, owned it, so yeah. yeah, so it, it was awesome and it was called uh, Intensify, and they have a a structure slider in there that breaks it down into highlights, shadows, and midtones, right? And they incorporated some of that in in the new Luminar and AI and all the other stuff, but that algorithm is different. It's the only program that I've ever found where, I mean, it seriously can extract just the detail and the highlights to the nth degree. So I'm always making a duplicate layer in Photoshop, then I'm applying the effect. Right So that I can use opacity and brushes and right. masks and you know do whatever else I want to do, another tip is I always start with the with the layer at seventy five percent not hundred percent so that way I can increase the effect or decrease the effect if you're, I talking, started,
0: you're talking the effect layer that's on top of the base image
1: exactly exactly right. so like so you make um you know like a uh, you know a new filter layer a smart layer right then I apply the effect. But if I apply the effect with the base layer starting at 75%. 75% opacity, I can kick it up to 95 if I need to,
0: right? Or I can drop
1: it down. If I start at 100, I can only go backwards. Okay. So yeah, so it just allows me to tweak it.
0: So this image, a shot like this, I mean, you don't have to be a a pro at your level to try and shoot these, right? People go to Yellowstone. People go to Yosemite. People try and capture wildlife shots all the time. What's, what's your one always go-to tip for people to get better moments, right? These types of moments.
1: Always be proactive. Always make sure your exposure is set in the camera before the decisive moment happens. So I don't care if that bobcat isn't eating the scene, but he's walking to the scene. So it's about where the cat's going to end up when I want to take the picture. So if it's going to be in the shade, then I'm going to set my exposure for the shade. So when the cat gets there, I can concentrate on the moment at hand, right? If it's going to be in the sun, I'm going to set the exposure up for the sun and the snow. That's already set in the camera. Now I can concentrate on focus. I can concentrate on composition. All the things aesthetically, they're going to make my picture, you know, uh, different than the the others, you know? And that's the key. If you're in automatic mode, you're doomed from the get-go, man. Every time, again, you change the size of the subject, you know, relative to the background and the tones change, It's the cat wagging the dog, you know, you're playing photo roulette. So I tell everybody they take the compensation wheel and they're just spinning the back dial, you know, trying to get the, you know, the right exposure. You got one shot at this man, one shot for 10 seconds. You don't want to shoot and go two stops underexposed son of a gun.
0: Right? Well, and, and not being a wildlife photographer, I always, I, I always kind of translate everything to what I shoot, which is music. And, it's the same type of a concept. And that is chase the subject, not the light. So when I go to an outdoor festival, sometimes the lead singer can be standing. There's a cover over the stage, right? And the lead singer will be standing under it and the drummers way in the back and I'll measure, and there can be a three stop difference between the singer and the drummer. And then the singer will lean forward out of the shade, And now they're three stops the other direction and completely gone. Well, I will measure that with the early band or I'll measure that on the first song and get in my head. I don't just chase it. I make a mental note. Okay. The drummer is two stops different. That's six clicks.
1: Outstanding. So I do the same thing.
0: It's that's all it is. So if I'm shooting the drummer and I've got my eye open peripheral vision and I see the singer jumping into the audience, I have already before they took the stage, turned and pointed my camera back at the audience to measure my exposure difference and go, okay, that's a four-stop difference. That's 12 clicks. Boom, I'm ready to go.
1: There you go.
0: Yeah. You know, just, yeah, chase, chase the subject, not the light. So, so here's so the So i get people
1: like, so, so what do you do when it's partly cloudy, right? That's the, the bane of our existence as a wildlife photographer, changing light. Well, the first thing I do is assess the scene. Does the subject look better in the overcast? Does it look better when the sun's out? If it looks better when the cloud's coming by, I'm going to wait till the cloud to come by. Right. I'm going to shoot stuff. I know it's not going to work. The other part of that is exactly what you said. I mean, exactly. So if the cloud comes over, I meet her when the clouds over when the sun comes out, I meet her. Okay. There's a two and a half stop difference. And just like you said, man, seven clicks, brat, shoot
0: it. Yeah. And the more you, now c- that cat can walk anywhere you want. It's like, okay, he's in the sun now, brrat, right. and I'm there. And, yeah. and, and again, yes, we all, we all capture light. But we're shooting subjects. Shoot the subject with the light. Well, we're aware so, of the light. Yeah, yeah. So here's, here's a question for you. As good as you are, who inspires you that people should know about and follow? Who's a photographer that, that people should be aware of? Wow.
1: Wow, there's so many. I mean, I tell people, you know, it's like, okay, so I'm this EOL and all that other stuff. If you go on Instagram every day, And you go on Facebook and you go on 500px1x and you look at those photographs and you're not humbled, then you're egomaniac. There's pictures on there that are as good, if not better, than any working pro on any given day. And I literally look at those photographs and go, oh my gosh, I wish those were mine. You know, and people go, what do you think's wrong with that picture? My name's not on it. That's the thing that's wrong with it. His name's on it instead of mine. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. So, you know, I, I can't really... At this point, pick like one person. I think that um, there's a bunch of people, you know, and if you look at the workshop and all that stuff and the guys who do wildlife and landscape, there's uh, Marcel Van Osten is mind blowing. He used to be uh, an advertising guy, you know, who started doing photography and his eye for composition and creativity and light. It's, it's, it's superlative. I mean, it's really well. And he's won all the major awards, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, there's, there's just, there's a lot. There's a lot. I started looking at John Shaw's books, you know, way back when and understanding how spot metering worked and all this other stuff worked, you know, and I did so many different disciplines of photography throughout my career. You know, it was just really crazy. And I think the best thing anybody could do who wants to be a photographer is work in a studio where you have nothing except a black hole and you learn light and you learn direction of light, quantity of light, quality of light, right? And that's the key to what we're doing. You know, we're just painting with light and then we take it outside. Right. So I can't move the sun, but I could move my position relative to it and the background, you know, and it's all that stuff that comes together. And you'll get people now who's entered the digital world and they bought a camera and they're like, wow, I'm going to be a, you know, a photographer and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that because the exposure looks good because what I see is what I get on the back of the camera right. and the exposure looks good, you know, but the creativity and the composition and the attention to detail. All that takes a long time to learn.
0: Yeah, I I agree. You mentioned John Shaw, actually, and Adam Jones, who is either going to be on right before this episode or right after, not sure yet, also picked uh, John Shaw for the same reason, looked at a bunch of the books uh, in the day. And uh, for everybody, those photographers that he just mentioned, the two that he mentioned by name, I will look them up, find the URLs. Put Those in the show notes so that you will be able to find them and go look at their work as well. Uh, Charles, people can find you at shootthelight.com is the main website. Uh, Charles Glatzer, uh, Charles.glatzer on Facebook, Charles uh, yeah. Glatzer on Instagram, it's G L A T Z E R, right? And then also, people should go, I'm guessing, look at uh, The Heat Company.us. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Tell me about that The Heat up. Company, really quick. So, yeah, are you appreciate affiliated that. with them?
1: Yeah, so a friend of mine, um, one of the best commercial guys in the world ever, Eric Miola, right? So uh, he said, he calls me up and he goes, Chad, I I was in Austria. I saw these gloves. You got to check these out. I think they're the best things ever for photographers. And I said, why? And they were originally designed for the Austrian and German army, right, to fire tactical weapons in cold weather environments. So I I bought the gloves, had them imported, checked them out. um, And they were phenomenal. They're the best things I've ever found for doing what I do. And we did some modifications and stuff to the, you know, to the gloves. And I told the company, look, you got anybody selling these in the US? And they were like, no. So I said, Well, I'd like to be the North American distributor. So originally I was the North American distributor for just a photography market. Now I have uh <laughs> the whole outdoor market, military law enforcement, you know, skiing, snowmobiling, hunting, you know, and photography. But they seriously are the best gloves ever if you want to do photography. You know, it's a layer system. So, there's a right. liner glove, then there's a shell mitt, then there's an outer shell. But you have the dexterity and the warmth, you know, spots for hand warmers, all that stuff. So, I wear them I in mean, anything from, oh man, I guess 20 degrees to minus 40 degrees. You know, we're pretty comfortable. So, uh, nothing I think is.
0: Theheatcompany.us.
1: Yeah, sorry. Yeah, the theheatcompany.us.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Just awesome. Charles, I can't say thank you enough for doing this, for taking your time, for sharing your knowledge and tips and all of that. Thank you.
1: That's nah, my pleasure. You know, it's at a point in my career where essentially all I want to do is give back to everybody, you know, and I want to see if I go on a trip with somebody, it's not about me. It's about them taking the picture. And if they get the best picture on the trip, that's that's my world. You know, if they yeah. win these major prizes, that's what it's about for me. You know, it's at the point I know I can take a good picture. It ain't about me. It's about helping them and seeing them get a good picture. Yeah, you know, and uh, paying it be forward as it were, yeah. paying it
0: forward. Charles Glatzer, make sure that you check him out again. It is uh, for the website. All you got to do is go to shootthelight.com. All the information, all the links are there. And a couple of things just to close out on. First of all, uh, don't forget the shows that I'm doing with Don Komarechka once a month. We're doing image critique shows. And if you want to participate in those, go to Flickr, sign up for Flickr. It can be a free account, it can be a paid account, and then join the group behind the shot. Once you're in the group, start sharing, play in the pool, have some fun. It's a good community. If you want your images considered for the image critique shows, add the Flickr tag BTS critique. It's all one word, no spaces, BTS critique. And that's kind of you saying, I understand what this tag means. I'm gonna let you use this image in the show for critique. And those are are being done right now once a month, streamed live to the YouTube channel with Don Komoreczka, the Macro Genius and Mad Scientist and myself. And then we usually have a guest come on as well to do a guest you know, being part of the panel and critiquing the images with us. So participate in that also. Quick reminder again about princetonphotoworkshop.com. My class is coming up in April, three consecutive weeks, one night a week. It's on uh, low light action photography. It's gonna be a lot of fun and I I hope that you'll join me for that as well. So to everybody, thanks. To my guest, Charles, thank you as well. To the Canon Explorer of Light program, thank you for giving me so many Canon Explorers of Light to interview in 2020. We're recording this at the end of the year. It'll run in uh, 2021. And to you guys for everything you've done for the YouTube channel, for the podcast feed, the reviews, et cetera, that you've left. Thank you so much for watching. Thanks for listening. And to everybody, I'm Steve Brazel. We'll see you on the next show.